Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. And uh, some of you set your clocks ahead, I see. Um, one of the nice things about using my iPhone for my alarm is it does it automatically for me. And <clears throat> so I don't have to do it ahead of time. Only one time in my life did I come to church late. Has anybody ever done that? Missed Sunday school? I did that once. That's pretty embarrassing. Drive in. Thankfully, I wasn't teaching that day. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's good to be here, and uh, I feel good even with an hour less of sleep. It's it's good to be here. It's good to be awake and alive. Well, let's start with prayer, and we'll get into what God has for us today. Thank you, Lord, so much for blessing us with this week and. And all the things that we've been able to learn from it and to grow with. And, and Lord, even the things that we're still uh, trying to figure out, Lord, we just ask that you would uh, continue to use those things in our lives <coughs> to direct our paths and, and make us productive in your hands. Lord, as we look into your word, I pray that your spirit just open up our minds and our hearts to what we need to see from you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be... Uh, dealing with the idea of persecution today, um, especially as it, it relates to the spread of the gospel. I mean, Acts chapter 8 um, today. The the opening question, the question will be really is kind of central to, to our lesson is how does persecution promote the spread of the gospel? Uh, it's what God uses. Um, an alternate question it would be, why doesn't God use the health and wealth model? That's the one I would sign up for. Uh, you know, the, the, the model where um, if, you, if you believe in Christ and become his follower, then he makes you very healthy and very wealthy and prosperous in all that you do. And so the rest of the world can see how, how good you have it and they would want what you have too. Um, God didn't choose to use that model. And um, he, he chose a different mo- method. And actually, when you read the scriptures and, and, and you read how people reacted to Jesus in the Gospels, and, and you begin to think about what he's dealing with, with people, with human nature, you do know why. <laughs> you can figure out why God didn't choose that model. Um, and But we... Uh, looking at the model that he did choose today and and see how it what the effects of it the impacts of it are uh we're in a, in a whole series of uh, lessons in this quarter called the church begins um for those of you who are new we are in a, a long series we've been now in our third year of uh, going from genesis and we're going clear to the end uh, doing answers in Genesis uh, material, and it's been a very uh, profitable study for us. And uh, now we are at this point, um, as we've gone past the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we're into the beginning of the church <coughs> and the first stages of it. We are uh, adult Sunday school classes, a pair family ministry designed to come alongside. Uh, our families and their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is just part of what we do, part of our purpose. This it helps 
our church to accomplish that purpose. And that's, that's why we are here today. It's the gospel spreads. And as I said, we're in Acts chapter eight. We'll be looking at uh, the persecution intensifying and then um, Philip leaving Jerusalem, as do many others leave Jerusalem. And, and uh, because of the persecution, the gospel then leaves Judea and goes to other parts of the world and what the impacts of that are. We will be doing a little bit of review, though. And uh, over from the last uh, few weeks, uh, Pastor Mike's been taking us through uh, some of those. So in Acts chapter uh, uh, 5, 4 and 5, we have Peter and John um, being arrested and told not to preach in that name. Now, if you remember that that first scenario, Peter and John walk into the temple and as they're walking in, there's a man who's lame. And uh, and so they he gets healed. They they heal him and he begins to jump around and make a big scene and gets the attention of everybody. And uh, so Peter and John begin to preach. And um, so they get brought before uh, the the religious leaders and uh, they're questioned about it and they're told not to preach in that name. And so uh, they. Uh, don't quit uh, preaching in that name. For some reason, they they have the idea that they need to obey God rather than men. And so they um, continue to preach in that name. So in Acts chapter 4, uh, they, that's what their response is. We will continue. And they do continue. And in chapter 5, we'll look in verse uh, 27 and see the second time they are told because they are arrested again. They are arrested. They're put in prison in the middle of the night. Angels come and let them out of prison and tell them to go back to the temple and, and begin preaching again. And so uh, when the guards come to get them out the next morning, they're not there. The jail's still locked. Everything's the guards are still in place. And uh, yet they're not there. And and so uh, the council is upset about this and they bring them again before them. Uh, and they they say this in verse 27, verse 27 begins with this. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so uh, they're told not to preach in that name. Um, they said, no, we're going to do it. And verse 40, um, <clears throat> after the, the, uh, the council there confers, they want to kill them. They just want to get rid of them. But Gamaliel argues for their life, to, to spare their lives. And so in verse 40, it says, They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them 
and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Uh, so they they told him not to do it. They said, we're going to do it. They threatened them. They said, we're going to do it. They threatened to kill them. They said, we're going to do it. And as uh, Vodibachum puts it when he's dealing with this passage, he says, how do you threaten a dead man? Uh, you see, they consider themselves to be already dead to the world, right? Their lives were, were not the same. And, and as, as Mike has brought up, over the last few weeks, and it's been brought up in, in the discussion that that really, as believers, our attachments to this world begin to grow dimmer and dimmer, right? As we progress in our faith. And so it's no longer um, us holding on and, and, and trying to find our best life now, but it is... Uh, looking for something in the future. And we'll be going into that more and more toward the end of the lesson. But that is is, uh, basically where Peter and John are. You see, what they've already been through is having seen their master crucified and then their master raised from the dead. You see that kind of thing? That's got to change you, right? It's got to change you about how you view everything. That is... Um, going to change your whole philosophical standpoint. And so that's where they were. And so, so how do you threaten a dead man? And that is um, what the, the council couldn't figure out. You know, why do our threats not get through? As we go through, we're going to see that all of this is going to intensify. But what we <clears throat> are also going to see and have seen in the last couple of weeks is that in this development of this church, as it's beginning, uh, one of the things that, that happens is there are seven ministers that are chosen. And these, are, these play significantly in today's lesson. And so that's why I'm bringing it up right now. But we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, these seven ministers are chosen. And these seven people were, were chosen to minister to the Hellenistic Jews that were in Jerusalem. And... And in case you don't know, I, it, I'll kind of review this quickly because this plays into our story today. In Jerusalem, there had, and generally there were a large contingent of out-of-towners that would come. And, and that's part of the Jewish custom is to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is the real home of, of the nation of Israel. It's the real home of the Jewish people. And uh, even today, one of the most common sayings that they have amongst themselves is maybe next year in Jerusalem because there's this draw that's put there by God to, to come together. It's just part of, of, of who they are, part of how God constructed them. And so at this time, there are people, they come for the festivals, um, for Passover is the big one, but for other festivals as well throughout the year come and and stay for a while and then go back home. And so these seven ministers were chosen to minister uh, to the Hellenistic widows that uh, had not been receiving their portion. And you can read uh, that in chapter 7. 
And uh, these men are all Hellenistic Jews, except for the last one in the list. If you read it, he's actually a proselyte. So he's a Gentile from Antioch um, who converted to Judaism, has come down uh, for worship, and then converted to, to Christianity, become a Christian. And so he's had gone through an amazing process himself. But these seven men were chosen to to minister and they're from different parts of the uh the roman empire and have come here for this time and become believers and in in christ and have stayed and and been been really kind of feasting together um in in their uh growing in their faith One of the things that happens in in chapter seven is uh, let me make sure I have the right chapter here. No, chapter six. I'm sorry. In chapter six is we have the debate of, in the synagogue of the freedmen. This is where Stephen really rises up. Um, and so we talked about in the last week uh the the death of Stephen, what what all transpired there, but it begins in this synagogue. And the synagogue of the freedmen was a, a in Jerusalem. By the way, there were there were many synagogues. Um, one historical writing says that at the time at this time of, of uh, Jerusalem, there's 480. It seems like a really high number, but there was a lot. And there's uh, synagogues. Uh, and it seems synagogues for different different kind of people. It's sort of like evangelical Christians kind of, kind of segregate, you know. And it's better for us if we you know mix together. And one of the good things about church like ours is we do have a good healthy mix of groups of people from different social status and so on. But um, this synagogue seems to be a synagogue that uh, was inhabited by Greek-speaking Jewish people. They would go there. They're from other parts of the empire. And it does say specifically, some are from Cyrene, which is Libya. Some are from Alexandria. So those both are major cities on, in North Africa, along the southern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And then it mentions Asia and Cilicia. Those are in what is now Turkey. And uh, so that's on the northern shores of the Mediterranean. Now, Cilicia is a region that smack in the middle of it is a city called Tarsus. Now, who do we know is from Tarsus? And so it is believed that as this debate is going, is getting hot, that one of the, the people in that uh, debate was Saul. So Stephen and Saul are probably going at it from in, in that debate. Now, now think about this. You have a synagogue that is there for people to come uh, and discuss the law and discuss their uh, Jewish customs as it befits the law, as they fit into the law. And because, um, as you probably know, there are different points of view of how the law actually is applied. And so Gamaliel, who is a prominent teacher of the law at this time, has is teaching 
and probably teaching these Greek-speaking uh, individuals and has a certain view of the law. And so they would come into these synagogues, they would discuss it, and probably debate was not unusual. But imagine these new believers now. Um, we would, and, and I'm thinking particularly of Stephen and Philip, who are uh, probably had been going to the synagogue, but have become believers in Christ. And now they're going with a completely different point of view. Because believing in Christ has changed their perspective. And so they go there and... So as things, what, what is held precious in Jerusalem is the upholding of worship in the temple and the law of Moses and all the customs that go to support the observances of those laws. And what if Stephen were to say, challenge the view that the temple is the meeting place for God? That's going to set things on fire. And what if he were to say that that the law of Moses was just a pointer to someone who's going to come and fulfill it and give us this uh, more direct path to God? Because that is what he's accused of. The accusations against Stephen are that he wants to destroy the temple and he blasphemes the law. And so then he's brought before the Sanhedrin. And he is, uh, as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, they are questioning him on it. And then he goes into his, um, what did I call it? His historical apologetic. And then we see his martyrdom. He goes into his apologetic and uh it's a really good read if you go ahead and read it as he is, because he's challenging everything that they believe. And uh, they get so upset with it, they rush him out of the city and uh, they kill him. He becomes then the first martyr of the church. So. Then we get into today's lesson. The persecution then begins to intensify in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. So let's go ahead and and, and read chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Probably um, Saul's first targets in this campaign would be those that he knew from this synagogue of the freedmen. They would be the Hellenistic Jews. And the reason why I think that's so is, is because it seems that the only ones who begin to leave Jerusalem at this point in time are the Hellenistic Jews. All the apostles still stay, and they don't seem to be touched by this uh, persecution yet. Um, and so the, the uh, 
the Aramaic speaking Jews who are from this area <coughs> don't seem to be targets yet. They will be targets later, but it's these Hellenistic Jews that, that Saul knows about and he begins to pursue them to arrest them. Now, why does he go off like this? Well, one of the things that F.F. Um, F. Bruce brings up in, in his commentary on Acts is what Saul is confronted with in this debate between he, uh, probably between him and Stephen. But as this whole thing goes on is the, the fact that with Stephen's argument, it became very obvious to everyone that Christianity and Judaism, as they know it and practice it, cannot coexist. They cannot coexist. Coexist is a big word in our um, world today. And yet, Christianity doesn't coexist with anything else. If you think about it, there is no tolerance um, for Christianity among any other religion either uh, or any world thought uh, philosophical point of view and that's not so unusual um, just this last week uh, there was some some pretty big battles between India and Pakistan there's not much coexistence between Hinduism and Islam either and there hasn't been for a long long time there centuries They've been been battling with each other. You see, human beings don't really like to share their their faith and kind of to as much as the world wants to try to make that happen so that we can have world peace. Um, world peace isn't going to come from human means. Here we find that this in, this persecution really intensifying because Saul knows, and not only Saul, but but the whole Sanhedrin now knows. There's no coexistence. This this new new sect that could have been just a branch of Judaism and and you know be like you know you have the Sadducees, you have the Pharisees, and you have the Christians. Uh-uh, it wasn't going to work like that. We're not going to get along. We're not going to be able to make it happen because Christianity challenged their views, what they believed to be true about what they held most sacred. See the temple. Yeah, it was it was an important place of worship. It was part of what God has established as a central place of worship. But it was more than that to them. It was part of their commerce. It was, I mean, they commercially depended upon that temple. Without that, why, why would you have all these people coming in, bringing their money and, and, and bringing it in for the sacrifices and all of those things? Yeah, it was a money-making thing. And so it was a big deal. And, yeah, they can cloak it with religion, cloak it with, you know, these other things. But you know how human beings are. Um, we've seen this happen in Christian circles as well. Cloaking uh, the, uh, the getting of money with religious garb. And uh, that's a very dangerous thing. We'll be seeing uh, some of that, in, in fact, a little bit later in this chapter. So uh, the persecution intensifies. Those who scatter, though, preach as they go. So let's read in verse four. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And then look at chapter 11. 
Uh, this gives us another example of it. Chapter 11, verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So... What we are are seeing in in some effect is number one, they're preaching, going, they're scattering throughout. In fact, in many cases, going back to where they had come, from where they had come, they um, are going to these places, and some of them just going to the to the other synagogues that from their, in their hometowns and preaching to the Jews alone. That's who they're comfortable with. But there's others. Uh, men from <coughs> from northern Africa who also they don't go back home yet at least at this time they go up to to Antioch and they're going to the Greeks and one of the things that's that we're going to see that is is uh, going to be remarkable is that these Hellenistic Jews seem to have more of a multicultural bent and God has in his design for the early church been preparing he's he had drawn them here to jerusalem for this time they become believers and now he's going to scatter them out to go to other people groups they speak greek uh they speak it very well uh whereas the judean and galilean uh jews are speak they speak aramaic as their primary language they also speak greek but not as well and uh so these are greek speaking people they're comfortable with this and they can they can go to these other cities that are also Greek speaking and they can more easily converse and they're more comfortable with these settings because they've grown up in other parts of the world. So um, they they scatter the persecution scatters them, but they go preaching and they're taking the gospel to these other places. So one of the things we see here, in fact, the primary point of our lesson is that God uses persecution to spread the gospel that this gospel is spreading, that the persecution is not something that surprises God or overwhelms God, but it's something that God uses. And over and over in Scripture, we're told how um, that God uses even the evil that man does to accomplish his will, right? And, and we get that from the story of Joseph. We get that from many other places, that, that God is is um as we've said before overwhelmingly sovereign he accomplished his purpose there's nothing that satan can do there's nothing that man can do to overthrow it every time satan tries to do something every time man tries to to resist all he ends up doing is accomplishing god's will and god is that powerful he is that wise and he actually does know what he's doing and he's the one we that we need to trust in samaria samaria <coughs> was that place in in uh, israel that was untouchable 
by the Jews, remember? They would avoid it by going around it. But we're going to read about Philip going to Samaria. Uh, This is where he goes to to get away from the persecution. So let's pick it up in verse 5 and read through verse 8. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, if you remember, we, we did talk about this a few months ago. Uh, we covered this. Jesus laid the groundwork in Samaria. Do you remember? He said, I need to go to Samaria to his disciples. And so he walked right through it. Uh, They ended up at a well that was Jacob's well. And Jesus sat there while the disciples went to to buy food. And while he's there, there's a woman who comes out to get water. And you remember the story. So this is in Sychar. And uh, as they're there, they end up spending three days there. This is a place where Jews aren't supposed to go. Remember the woman's response was, how is it that you, being a man and a Jew, talk to me, a woman from Samaria? Uh, So uh, Jesus opens the door to Samaria. He's already, in fact, (coughs) opening the minds of his disciples to the possibility, the potential that the, the, the gospel isn't just for the Jews, but even the Samaritans. And so um, it's not going to be unusual that uh, it would happen. Also, Jesus told them right before his before he left. Remember what he said? That you would preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and where we got to go there. Yeah, Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, So, yeah, Samaria is on the mind of God and we see that that God is working powerfully here and uh, in Samaria. Then uh, let's skip down to verse 14. We'll come back and do 13 and, and on in, in a few minutes. But verse 14, we find Peter and John coming down. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So what we have here is Peter and John coming and building this bridge of the, of the body of Christ. Um, there's, there is some uh, debate discussion as to what's going on. Why did they have to come down there? Why did the Holy Spirit just not come in when they received Christ? When they, you know... Uh, made their commitment to Christ. Um, the best explanation I, that I saw is this one. And, and that is that you, you have such a, uh, an antipathy between the, the Jews and the Samaritans and God wants that bridge built. He wants it built because he wants a united body of Christ that, that the, the body of Christ is going to be made up of more than just the Jews. It starts with the Jews. But it's going to go to the Samaritans. 
And as we're going to find out in, in later chapters, it's going to go to the Gentiles in an amazing way. When, when Peter goes up to the house of Cornelius. But uh, <coughs> we find here that uh, this delaying of the Holy Spirit coming upon them is to show a sign to the Samaritans that they're part of the body and, and they're, they're part of it. And also when Peter and John take the report back to Jerusalem of what has happened, that the, the, the church in Jerusalem is going to, to be able to accept this idea that God is about more than just us. God is, is bringing all people into his, his uh, arms. And so uh, they, uh, they do now have the opportunity to see themselves as one body. However, in Samaria, there's the attempted corruption of the gospel by Simon Magus. And so let's go back and read verses 9 to 13 and then 18 to 24. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly had, was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Let's drop down to verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It is believed by most commentaries, commentators, I should say, who write commentaries, um, that uh, Simon did not um, repent, that there, that his believing was not the real thing. And this is not um, the first time that would be so. If you remember in um, John chapter 2, 23 to 25, um, <coughs> it says this. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so sometimes in the, in the scripture, it talks about 
believing, but the, the belief is very superficial. And so Jesus recognized that superficiality, that it was not an enduring. Yeah, it's, it's like an intellectual consent. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that, or I, I see that that is true. But it's not a, a heart-changing faith. It's not life-changing. And, and uh, it seems that this is what has happened with Simon. Simon sees Philip come in. Simon being a man who has a, 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 an amazing reputation in the community. And he's been able to perform different things, um, uh, different sorts of signs and so on. But he sees Philip coming and Philip preaching this message of Christ and doing these amazing uh, signs that are there. And, and Simon's like, wow. This is this is really cool. I, I want to be part of this. And so he kind of joins up. He wants to be part of it. And then he wants to have the, this special gift that he sees that's coming from Peter and John. Because he sees, wow, these are the real guys. You know, they have the real power. And so he wants to plug into that. Get in on the ground floor, so to speak, you know, and just kind of grow with the company. Um, but that's that's not God. how God does things. And Peter confronts him. And this is an amazing confrontation. Uh, F.F. Bruce also talks about, about this confrontation or what Peter, his response to Simon. And it's pretty brutal. Basically, what Peter says is to perdition with your silver and with you if you don't repent. Uh, that's pretty literal. That's, that's a fairly literal translation there. Uh, Peter doesn't mess around with this. And, and one of the things that to keep in mind here is that is they are guarding this gospel against any kind of <coughs> of uh, monetary confusion and so on. This isn't a gospel about getting rich. This isn't a gospel about exchanging money. The gospel has never been about that. The gospel is about the power of God. And about our reverence to God and our coming before God in, in that holy way. Uh, it's not about exchanging money. It's not about our credit card. It's not about you know, what we can uh, order from God. No, it, God never has worked that way. And, and Peter is protecting that. And he protects it very bluntly in, in this way. It's, um, it's interesting, too. That Simon um, is written about by um, later um, church writers. Justin Martyr, who's in the second century. Also, Irenaeus, who's in the second century. There were um, pretty... Uh, it, it wasn't legendary. They were, they were stories that had been, been um, passed on. Uh, so by the time these guys arrive on the scene, by the way, just a martyr is, was born and raised in Samaria. He's from there. And, um, so th they had an interest in who this guy was. It is, it is written by them and it was believed by them that the, uh, the Gnostic heresy that the early church fought against originated with Simon that, uh, in, and so that's another reason why. It's not believed by most commentators that that he ever repented. Um, in fact, um, what he seemed to to believe here was that 
um, that he he was afraid of what would happen to him physically, but there wasn't a heart of repentance in his response. If you if you read his response to Peter, there's there's not like a uh, falling down before God and, and and having reverence before God. It's just you know don't let these bad things happen to me. And so uh, it is. Uh, it it does seem that, that he does not truly repent. Um, and that is the, one of the realities in the spreading of the gospel, right? There's going to be tares among the wheat. Jesus said that. And it, so there's going to be false professions, people who are pretenders. And, and some of the pretenders don't even know they're pretenders. They don't even know. Um, but that's that's the reality. <coughs> Then they leave um, this particular city. By the way, it, it, this the city. We don't, we're not sure what city it was in Samaria. Uh, probably when it says they, that Philip went into Samaria, is talking about the region of Samaria because the city of Samaria was no longer called this called Samaria. It was it had a different name. It had been destroyed and it was rebuilt by Herod the Great, and he named it. Um, something else i'll have a map coming up it'll have that name on there but um he he, it was renamed and so it went by a different name by this time so uh whatever city they were in they're moving back to jerusalem and as philip and peter and john are, are moving along they're preaching the gospel in other villages and it says there that more are evangelized verse 25 so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the lord they started back to jerusalem and we're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And again, I can't help but think about that, that trip that Jesus took to Sychar and where he, he kind of cut the way and, uh, and opened that up for them, <coughs> preparing for this day, uh, this time period. There's the map. Does that show up? And so uh, you can see where Jerusalem is. He move up to the Samaritan area. Yeah, and Samaria, the city, is now called Sebaste. Um, Sychar is below there, and so they went up there, then they worked their way back, and now we're going to find Philip going to uh, visit an Ethiopian official. I call him an Ethiopian official. That's not as painful to me. Um, so, uh, he goes there. Uh, so let's, let's begin reading verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. <coughs> Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. 
He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as he went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. All right, so we see here um, that... That Philip is is taken on a special mission to meet an individual. Now he has been has left Jerusalem, went to Samaria, and, and he was dealing with crowds of people. And for whatever reason, God, after this is done, directs him to an individual. And I think that speaks to to something to us is that that God is not just interested in crowds but also individuals that, that actually every conversion is an individual, right? We don't convert as a crowd. We may be in a crowd when it happens. We may not be, we may be all alone, whatever it is. God's spirit works individually in our hearts and God is demonstrating at least that point to us. Um, so he, he directed him to this, this official, and uh, so we see him sharing the gospel. Now, the Ethiopian uh, country uh, is was known to also be, in the courts at least, uh, Greek-speaking. Uh, the Hellenization from <coughs> that began with Alexander, you know, he just he just spread that language everywhere. And so he's reading the Greek interpretation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and he's reading Isaiah. And uh, Bruce uh, says that that he would have been reading aloud because that's how you read those scriptures are difficult reading. And uh, so you read them aloud. And uh, and so as he's sitting in his Bruce calls it a covered wagon, um, you know, here it's translated chariot, but a covered wagon. Um, so I'm thinking like the Wells Fargo wagon. Is that what it looked like? I don't know. But. Or a Conestoga, you know, one of those prairie schooners. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but he's in this wagon reading the scriptures. Philip comes up alongside him. So he must have been going slow, uh, going along the road. And Philip asks him if he understands. Philip hears him reading aloud in Isaiah. And so Philip has his entree into the conversation and what an amazing conversation that is we read this we think what an open door right but that's what the holy spirit does when the holy spirit is working he's opening up the heart and uh as we as as believers are in our world 
we should be looking, where is God working? Where is God working? Asking God to direct us to those places where God is already working and, and, and looking for those open hearts, those open doors. And certainly this man had an open heart. We don't know anything about him after that. We don't know what happened as he went back to Ethiopia. We don't know anything. All we can do is presume things. Um, <coughs> so you're free to make your own presumptions. But uh, we do know that God specifically brought Philip to talk to this man. God had a purpose. And God doesn't just do things willy-nilly. He had a purpose to bring this man. And the other thing I was thinking about was there's this age-old question. You know, what about the person who's never heard, you know, in this far-off country? You know, what does God do with them? Well, if he needs to, he drops a prophet on them. You know, uh, God has a way of getting the gospel to to whoever he is calling, to whoever he's working on. God is working on this man. We don't know whether this man was actually Ethiopian by birth or whether he was a Jewish person that had, you know, immigrated to Ethiopia and was working in the court. And, and that's the reason he went to Jerusalem to begin with, because that's what Jews do. They go to Jerusalem for the festivals. Um, I think that's most likely the case, but it could have been that he's also Ethiopian by birth. It, what, whatever it is, he understands Greek and he's able to read the, uh, the Old Testament passage from Isaiah and Philip is able to communicate to him in Greek um, the, the truths of who Isaiah is really talking about. Isaiah didn't even know who he was talking about. But Philip knew. And that's another thing about prophecy. Um, the prophets many times didn't know what the, all those things meant. But after the prophecy is fulfilled, it's easy to see who it meant, right? We can look back on it and say, wow, yeah, we can see it. And uh, that's, that's the cool thing about prophecy. When it's fulfilled, then it becomes obvious. It's very apparent as to what it meant. Now, let's go back to that map. What it says is that uh, after he left there, he went up and found himself at Azotus, which is the old city of uh, the Philistine city of Ashdod. Then he worked his way up the coast, preaching in the cities uh, along the way. So you have Lydda, Joppa, Antipatris, Apollonia, and then finally Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea is where he ended up. And if you look over in uh, chapter 21 of Acts, we find Philip for the last time. Verses 8 and 9. Paul is is on his way to Jerusalem to get arrested. He kind of knows that because he's being told that all along the way. But he's on his way. And, but it says um, in verse 8, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. 
So what we know about Philip then is Philip made his way up to Caesarea. He settled there. Could have been that's his hometown. You know, that's where he grew up. We don't know. But anyway, he married. He um, had uh, these daughters. He raised them in the Lord. He calls him an evangelist. So he seems to still be involved in ministry and in, in spreading the gospel. <coughs> he's, it's, and he's welcoming the Apostle Paul to come which is a pretty amazing thing because it's because of Paul that he had to leave to go to, you know, leave Jerusalem to go to Samaria and that whole story. But this is years later. And uh, what a great story this is. This is just amazing that God works. God does uh, his purpose and his plan. Okay. Application. Uh, the spreading of the gospel uh, has been God's plan and accomplishment since the day of Pentecost. And nothing gets in the way of it. Uh, God does, you know, persecution doesn't get in the way of it. Nothing gets in the way of it. Nothing can stymie the spread of the gospel. Nothing can stop it. Uh, the Satan tries to. He has many ways of trying Um Despite the frailty of human agents, God has not failed to reach every person he has chosen. See, God doesn't leave it up to fickle and frail human beings to accomplish his plan. He uses us and lets us join him in his plan. But God accomplishes his plan. See, he is sovereign. He is God and he does what he's going to do. Many times God has used persecution as the means of cracking open the gospel. Just as a wildfire is used to crack open the seeds of some vegetation. There's some, some plants that, that grow actually in our hills. Um, that the wildfires come through. And if they don't come through too frequently, like every other year. Um, that <clears throat> that, that those, those plants actually need the fire to, uh, to reproduce. And so there's some things, some things in nature like that. Well, sometimes this, that's what persecution does. Persecution is what actually opens the gospel up um, and makes it available to people. God uses it that way. As long as we are here, God intends for us to continue to shine his light through persecution, <coughs> trials, or abundance. When I was... In high school, um, way back when, when they actually did have high schools back then, you know, I just, I just feel old. <laughs> but um, back then, being in a church youth group and you know, getting trained, we would we had the time where we trained in personal evangelism, how to share our faith, and so on. But I remember in in my mind thinking, you know, if we could just have a cooler presentation we could just make the gospel cool if we could and, and those are the words that were very common back in the you know, 70s but, but thinking about you know how it is you know if we could just make it so it's appealing to people in the world you know more people would get saved you know if we we, 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 if we could just make the gospel cool and and that idea stayed with me um so I went through bible college and and uh got in in early years of serving in church ministry and and doing things um 
and and as you know, um, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that that uh, <clears throat> at least the American church has has wrestled with that, and some have have really tried to do that to make the the presentation cool, appealing to the world, and so on. Um, but that's not what happened in Jerusalem. That's not what Stephen tried to do when he's in that synagogue of the freedmen. Um, it's not what Philip did when he went to Samaria. And I like the way, the, again, I'm going to quote Wody Bakum. I like the way he says, <coughs> response to this, he says, we don't need to make the gospel cool. We need to make it clear. Um, I remember going to my 20th um, high school reunion. And that's when my eyes were opened. Um, I realized how overrated cool is. Because <laughs> you, you go there and you see the cool people that were cool, you know, back when we were 17. Um, and you realize, man, these people are beat up with life just like me. You know, there's, we're all the same. It's, there's no, you know, cool is really overrated. Um, and what we need is the truth. That's what we need. We don't need we don't even need it to be soft pedaled to us. We just need the truth. Yeah, we should share the gospel in love. Um, and, and we should be as winsome as we can be. Um, but we, the gospel isn't meant to be cool. In fact, it's meant to invade our thinking. It's meant to uh, uh, confront who we are and how it is that we live. It's meant to change us. It's meant to uh, uh, mess with our traditions. It's meant to mess with our culture. It's meant to do all of those things. The gospel does not coexist with any of man's ideas because the gospel comes from God. And God doesn't need cool. Uh, it's tempting for Christians to think that, you know, if we could get, just get the right person in the White House the right person in Sacramento, or if we could just get the right um, movie star to come out as a Christian and, and, and share their testimony or the right uh, super athlete to, to, uh, to become a Christian, you know, that would make it cool and that would make it um, acceptable for people. But again, as Vody Bauckham says, God does not share his his glory. God does not. <clears throat> God does not share his fame, and God doesn't need to borrow fame from from any human being. We don't need to wait for some superstar. What we need to do is make the gospel clear. And who does God use to share the gospel? Paul talks about it being the foolishness of men to share the gospel. See, God doesn't use, generally speaking superstars God uses ordinary people in ordinary lives to share the gospel and that's why he wants to use us we're to remember that this life is not the best that God has for us Um, that there is something better for us in the future this is what we look forward to that as we live life, <clears throat> as we're faced with possibly persecution, we are to, 
to uh, live life remembering that this isn't what we're living for. We're living for what's ahead of us, what's in front of us. And so Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 11, he, uh, the writer of Hebrews says this, talking about those who, who live by faith. It says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to people who are under persecution, severe persecution, and he's writing to encourage them to stand fast. And so this is one of the things that he brings up. We're not we're not looking for uh, building an empire here. This isn't where our empire is. We're looking for a country that's a heavenly country that God is preparing for us. We don't even have to build it. God's building it. All we have to do is be faithful. That's what God has prepared for us. This life is all that we know by experience. And so sometimes looking ahead like that is is difficult. But it's not all that we know by faith. All right, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, so much for your kindness to us. But Lord, also thank you for letting us be part of your body and part of what you're doing. And what a privilege it is to know that you work in our lives. And may we be yielded to what you want to do with us. Whatever it is that comes our way, Lord, we want to walk by faith, trusting in you and giving to you our very best. In Jesus name. Amen.